everyone and welcome to episode 22. I think this is episode 22 of the 7investing.com podcast. Our mission here at 7 Investing is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing a ton of free educational content like this podcast and by offering a monthly subscription service where our team of advisors provides our seven best ideas in the stock market each month for just $17. I just learned how to pronounce this today a few minutes ago, but uh, we've got Jamin Ball here today from Redpoint Ventures. And really one of the first place, places I saw you or met you online, Jamin, was through Twitter, but through your clouded judgment Substack. And so that's how I'm familiar with you. Um, you are a, I believe you're a According to your LinkedIn, you're a vice president at Redpoint Ventures. So I'd love for you to just spend a second um, introducing yourself and, uh, you know, maybe sharing a little bit about yourself. But then, you know, we talk a lot about public companies at 7investing. A lot of people are probably familiar with with venture capital and what VCs do. But if you could just provide a little bit of background on that, just, just so we can start to tie together maybe some of the similarities and differences between you know, private venture capital and then investing in, in public companies. Totally. Well, first off, thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited, excited to be joining the podcast. So I joined Redpoint about four years ago. We are a a venture capital firm that invests in both consumer and enterprise B2B software businesses. We've been around for about 20 years now. We have two different teams here at Redpoint. We have an early stage team, and it's actually an early stage fund, you can think about them as typically investing in and partnering with seed and series A stage businesses. And then alongside that, we have an early growth fund, which is what, uh, that's the team I'm on. We have about six other individuals on that team. We're typically investing and partnering with businesses at the series B or later stage, right? So, so anything from um, companies with you know, a million dollars in revenue less all the way up to companies with, you know, tens or even hundreds um, and, and, and everything in between. So I focus on mainly B2B software businesses, anything at the infrastructure layer, any kind of DevOps business, application software, SaaS or cybersecurity. Those are typically the areas I focus on. We also do a bit of healthcare and consumer, uh, but it's not quite as much of a focus. You know, before Redpoint, I was over at Morgan Stanley doing investment banking. So working more with, you know, much later stage businesses or public businesses, typically in the software and security space. And before that, I was I was over at Stanford. So pretty much been in the Bay Area working in tech, uh, you know, my whole life. And, and I guess to your question on, on venture capital, usually in, in kind of what we do, so at every stage of a business, you know, typically, and, and the exception are companies that are bootstrapped, but typically businesses will look for outside capital to fund their operations. That might be hiring their first few engineers to get the product off the ground, you know, down the road. That might be hiring their first few go-to-market and sales folks to, um, you know, really take a business that has, you know, maybe a couple of design partners, um, to something that's more mainstream with an outbound sales motion. Sometimes businesses are able to fund that with cash flows that the business generates, but more often than not, you know, that isn't the case. And, you know, they'll look for outside capital to do that. And and we'll be that partner that kind of provides the capital, but also works with the business as they continue to grow to think strategically about their operations, right? Things like how to build a sales team, how to structure it, thinking about product vision, thinking about all, all the different types of things that, you know, we get to see in every business uh, we work with, right? You know, the way we always like to talk about it is for many of the founders that we work with, you know, it's the first time they're doing this, right? It's the first time they're building a company. You know, they don't know what they don't know. Well, I mean, they're, they're often much smarter than us, but, you know, we, we've seen around corners that happen. We've seen scaling issues that happen that, you know, businesses might not be able to predict. And so we'll, you know, we'll help them look around corners and, um, and all of that is, as they ultimately look to you know, become a public company one day. So that's a little bit more about me and, and what we do over at Redpoint. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm on the, um, Redpoint website. So also, uh, everybody, you can follow Jammin at, uh, on Twitter at J A M I N B A L L Jammin ball. 
um, and I'm on the Redpoint website. And a couple other things on here that are that are just kind of fun is your favorite hobby outside of venture is fantasy football. Um, yes. So that's probably you're probably struggling with that right now a little bit. Yes, and then, indeed. and then you've got a a, a quote up here that um, you even you say it's overquoted. Um, but you try to apply it in so many aspects of life, skate to where the puck yeah. is going, not where it has been. So, you know, it's probably pretty obvious or you feel like it's probably pretty obvious to think about how in your mind that applies to what you do investing in, in private companies. And then, and yeah. then also what appears to be um, a hobby or a passion for public companies as well. But yep. where do you apply that? Where else do you apply that in your life? Um, might get a yeah. little bit off of investing here, but um, still, I'd love to get to know you. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think honestly, there's, I mean, you can, uh, I'll give kind of a, a joke answer first, right? But, uh, you know, linking it back to my fantasy football interest, you know, <laughs> the, the ways, the ways you get ahead in your leagues, right? It's by, it's, it's not with your first, second, third round pick. It's, it's by finding that gem, you know, maybe it's a rookie, you know, who doesn't have much of a, um, you know, a track record, you don't really know what to expect, you know, getting them in one of the later rounds. And, and the idea there is, right, you, you know, it doesn't matter what they've done in the past, you know, you want to put value in where they're going or what the situation will be, right? So I, I apply there. I think on like a personal level, um, you know, I, I think, at, you know, I got married a few years ago. We had our first child a year ago, Congrats. number two on the way. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think there's so many different places just in my personal relationships, right, where, you know, it helps me think more big picture, right? You know, I want to think about, you know, especially with, you know, being a first time parent, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many challenges that arise in, in being able to take a step back and, you know, not just worry about solving the issue of, you know, at hand, but, you know, things that will come up and, and optimizing for down the road and thinking more long-term um, just kind of always helps to keep that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a great quote. And, We've heard it a lot, but I think like you point out, it's, it's an important one. Yeah. So let's jump in, um, to your Substack, Right. And it's, yeah. um, I follow it, highly recommend anybody that's interested in the types of companies that we're talking about, um, subscribe as well. It's cloudedjudgment.substack.com. And just from, from the about section to give people a quick reference, uh, it's a series of weekly data-driven posts that will be published on Friday mornings where you break down latest valuation trends, operating metrics, uh, and the metrics that are driving those trends behind the universe of cloud, um, SaaS, or software as a service public companies. Um, and basically, you just talk about how, as uh, a venture capitalist at Redpoint, you've developed frameworks that are, most of them are data-driven to evaluate private SaaS businesses. Um, that are broadly applicable to their public counterparts. So yeah. anything you want to add up front about um, Cloud of Judgment? I love it that your posts are long and data-driven, which I appreciate. A lot of people are looking for like real quick, just highlights. Uh, I love the depth that you go in. But what I really want to get into is those frameworks that you highlight yeah. and that you've kind of built in, in the private world and are mm -hmm. now starting to apply to, to public companies. Totally. And, and so, I, so I guess it's just kind of two, two questions there. And what I'll start with is, you know, the framework that, you know, that I like to use for evaluating private businesses. And, and it definitely does, it definitely does differ a bit just because, you know, we're allowed and we have the time to go much deeper on the analysis for every private investment we make in ways that I just personally wouldn't have the time or the resources to do for every public investment. But, you know, when we look at, uh, private company investments, there's, there's really, I'd call it five main buckets that we're looking to evaluate. You know, the first being the team, that's a very important one for us. It's, it's often a, a needle mover. And what I mean by that is, you know, we want, we want to back teams, you know, that have big goals, that have big visions and are smart technical people, right? We want, you know, we want individuals who aren't looking for a quick flip, we want to back founders who, you know, one, you know, we get along with and they get along with us, but also are, are kind of, you know, shooting for the stars here and, and finding the right team, doing reference checks, uh, looking at what they've done in the past, that, that goes a long way for us. You know, the second big category we like to evaluate is the product. 
And we do that generally through a number of conversations with customers or even conversations with customers of their competitor's product just to kind of better figure out their positioning. And what we love to hear more than anything is customers who love the product, customers who can articulate a clear ROI in use cases, customers who can articulate how the use cases have evolved and changed over time. Um, and then just in general, a love for the product. I mean, it's, it's not often you hear customers who love working in a certain software, right? It's either a means to an end or it's something that was mandated by them. But when you kind of hear consistent reviews of, you know, I love working in this product. It makes my day-to-day -day job so much easier. That kind of gets us excited. You know, the third bucket we really dig in on is, is the market. And I guess this is kind of two buckets. Um, but first just being the size, you know, how big is this market? How fast is it growing? I'd say it's, it's generally a, it seems like it should be an easy bucket to quantify. It's often harder than you would think, just given, you know, the rapidly changing nature of cloud markets and SaaS markets today. I'd say we oftentimes uh, underestimate how big markets can be, and it's a reason we don't do deals that we should. And, you know, we, we make far more mistakes than, uh, than right decisions if you look at all the deals we've, you know, passed on. Um, and then, you know, the second piece of the market is the competitive dynamics. We don't have a huge fund. We have a $400 million growth fund. We're probably making four investments a year, four to five investments a year. We want to back businesses that are, you know, the leaders in a category. So we want to find a market that we think is big and growing, and we want to find the best company in that market, uh, the one that we think can be impactful. You know, the fourth bucket is, is the financial profile. We want to dig in on you know, the high level metrics, right? The growth will break out growth into look at, looking at things like, you know, what is the percent or how is the, you know, the net new ARR added per quarter trending? How is just the new logo ARR per quarter trending? You know, all the different pieces of an ARR waterfall. We look at the margin expansion. There are a couple key metrics that I personally really like to track. And I, I kind of highlight a few of those in, in some of my posts, but the two metrics that I really care the most about are net expansion and the payback period. And, and you know, net expansion, basically, for those who aren't familiar with it, it will take a cohort of customers at any given point in time and say one year from now, how much is that cohort of businesses spending relative to that initial period spent? So it's inclusive of upsells, inclusive of churn or any kind of contraction. And essentially what it shows you is, is what that group of customers will grow to right without adding any new logos and so over time as cohorts combine it, it kind of shows you what a, a longer term growth rate could be even assuming no new customers are added which are no new logos are added which, which is a super interesting metric and i think a unique part of the SaaS business model that is is underappreciated and then the payback period that that may be a little bit more of a non-standard metric but we like to look at the cost to acquire a business we then look at, and when I say a business, I'm talking more about a group of businesses, right? We might look at the cost to acquire all the customers from one quarter. We look at what the, the gross margin contribution is of that cohort. And then we say, how long does that, does it take to pay back that spend to acquire the customer on a gross margin basis? And we measure that in a uh, period of months. And we like to see you know, call it 15 to 20 month or less payback. Um, it's a bit of a, a tricky metric to wrap your head around just talking about verbally, but hopefully I <laughs> somewhat explained it well. Yeah, no, this is, this is all great. And, you know, y you were basically talking about um, the, the venture side, I, I think, right? Yeah. In private yeah, companies, yeah, that's but, the venture side. That's the venture but everything side. you said to me applies to investing in, in public SaaS companies. And, and you hit on a couple points um, that I'd love to just like hear, I mean, hear you talk more about. Um, totally. You talked about sometimes uh, it's a factor and sometimes it's maybe caused you to pass over um, companies. And then if we flip that to the public side, I think yeah. this, is, this is what has caused a lot of the outperformance, I believe, in public yeah. SaaS companies is people, and you can look, I mean, Salesforce is one of the most obvious, right? They're, they're kind of like the uh, OG of 
SaaS, the SaaS yeah. category, right? They, they were basically the first software as a service company. Maybe technically there was another one, whatever. They're, they're one of the most well-known. <laughs> they, I mean, and then from them on, almost every SaaS company that you look at as a success today, that's been a massive, massive winner was just serially under, uh, like underestimated their market size, their growth potential. Yeah. And so it seems like just like you talked about on the private side, public investors have had the exact same thing. They have significantly underestimated the potential market size for a lot of these companies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kind of jumping ahead, but we look at valuations today in, in public SaaS companies and, and, you know, they are getting up there for sure. And some probably aren't deserved for the companies that have them. Some I believe are, but I guess what I'm getting at is, is, what are your thoughts on how much that'll continue where, you know, are we still underestimating the potential market size of a Twilio, a Mongo database, mm -hmm. companies like that, or are we getting closer to where we probably have a good understanding and, and maybe most of that growth is, is priced in. And I'm not looking for you to make a, uh, a call on, on any of these stocks or anything like that. It's just, I think it's one of the most important points yeah. that, that, investors in, in some of these companies have to think about right now is how yeah. much of this is, is priced in and how much is maybe underestimated still. Totally. Totally. I, I think it's a great question and something that's extremely relevant to you know what we're seeing in the markets now. And I guess just to highlight the, you know, how this actually plays out and, and then I'll answer the question. Um, you know, years ago when we looked at Datadog, right, we, we thought that, you know, maybe call this like the series A, you know, at the time you saw, workloads moving to the cloud right and that entailed cloud applications right and that you'd have to monitor with an apm solution like an app dynamics and then infrastructure moving to the cloud which you would monitor with something like a datadog and at the time you look at that and you say okay well how much of the market is really how much of the infrastructure has currently been running in the cloud today it's not that much okay so how much is a tool that monitors that going to be worth well it's a fraction of a fraction so it's not that much and you know you maybe think that monitoring the applications is more important than the infrastructure because because that's been, you know you kind of do all this analysis long story short you know we drastically underestimated that market size <laughs> and i think it's still underestimated today by you know big public investors but i guess getting back to your to your main question and this is something that i've dug in quite a bit too recently um you, you know, you, you kind of, you can pull any of these big CIO surveys from, you know, the, the sell side investment banking research groups. And, you know, I think something that you can pull out that usually ends up being a pretty consistent number is you see about, you know, no matter how, how you slice the, and dice the data, we're about about only a 20% cloud penetration today, whether you're looking at applications being run in cloud environments, you know, whether you're looking at number of data being stored in cloud warehouses versus on-prem warehouses, you know, whether you're looking at the spend, just pure spend from an IT perspective on, you know, cloud versus on-prem technologies, it, it all ends up coming to about 20 to 25% penetration, um, you know, which I think one should just demonstrate how much room we still have left to run in cloud. You combine that with the fact that, you know, you, you kind of hear anecdotally, right, from all the big, you know, tech leaders, you know, you hear from Aaron Levy all the time, you hear from Satya Nadella all the time, you hear from the Twilio team all the time, right, digital transmit transformations are being pulled forward, which, yeah, I think we'll, we're, we still have yet to see that in the data for Q2 earnings, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see a lot this week. Um, but, but what that shows to me is that we still have, you know, one, a lot of room to run, but two, the adoption is accelerating, right? It's it's not a linear trend to get to, and you, you know, we probably won't ever you know, get to 100% in the near term, right? But you know, we might get to 40, 50% just in a couple of years. And you know, when I see that, and I see the public market multiples, people are factoring in high sustainable growth rates for a longer period of time than normal. And you look at someone like Salesforce who's doing billions of dollars of annual revenue and still growing. 30% year over year. I mean, their growth rate at that scale is phenomenal. And so you kind of have to take a step back and think, you know, the only companies that are really going to be able to sustain these growth rates are ones who A, are going to be able to really take advantage of the fact that more and more, you know, workloads or data storage is being moved to the cloud. You know, you look at some of these metrics like net revenue retention, 
you see a company like Twilio, I can't remember what their exact number is, but it's, it's north of 130%, right? And so you say, okay, if that company can grow in an 130% net rev retention rate, that means as a whole, the business will grow 30% year over year without adding any new customers. Um, you know, a, a number greater than 100 just means they're expanding, less than 100 means it's contracting. So you look at just what they're growing on their existing base of business, they can grow 30% plus, or I think it's even close to 40% plus year over year adding no customers. So then you layer on new logos, right? And the growth you get from new customers, it's, it's really, you don't really have to squint too hard to see a business that can grow 50% plus year over year at real scale. And when you see these multiples, right, we see public SaaS businesses in general, I think the median is trading around 13 or 14 X forward revenue. In my mind, I don't see those multiples really being sustainable. It's just, it's just quite high. Typically, we don't see the SaaS universe maintain a multiple over than 10x for an extended period of time. It kind of fluctuates in between the 5 to 10x band. And so the companies that will you know, prosper are the ones that can grow into these valuations the fastest. And to grow into the valuation you know, faster, you need to be able to sustain a high revenue growth rate at scale, which I, I do believe many of these businesses will, but right, you know, not all of them, you know, not, not everyone benefits equally from COVID. It, it's, it is a tide that lifts all boats, but it definitely lifts some boats disproportionately. Yeah. And, and, um, I invest public, public, in public companies almost exclusively in software yeah. as a service companies. I have a couple companies I own, um, Roku, Peloton that are more in, either call it advertising or digital enter entertainment or something like that. But, you know, mostly a, a lot of the enterprise software companies. And, and one of the things I try to think about when I'm looking at them is exactly what you said. So sure, their price of sales multiples a little bit elevated right now, but it, as long as they're, if they're growing 50% or 60%, uh, if they're growing the revenue yeah. 50 or 60% year over year, then even if their price of sales multiple is elevated right now, all it's going to take is two or three quarters for them to kind of grow into that. Totally. And then if the stock price doesn't move for three quarters or a year, you know, really shouldn't care that much because then it'll be undervalued. And as long as they can sustain that revenue growth and, and keep that customer retention and that dollar based net expansion rate where customers are just spending more anyways, then it should work out. But the challenge is finding companies that are actually going to yeah. continue growing revenue. Right. And so you, you talked about it a little bit uh, in, in making sure that you're invested in the companies that are kind of a, a piece of that, I guess you could say critical infrastructure or the, the mm -hmm. critical part of companies doing business and not just something that they can, they can move away from easily. Um, you mentioned this week being kind of big for public SaaS companies. And so I'm looking at your clouded judgment Q2 uh, SaaS earnings preview. And on here, you know, highlighted for this week, you have Ring Central today, um, Twilio, New Relic, Paycom tomorrow, Fastly, HubSpot, Square on the 5th, Datadog, um, Cloudflare, Alteryx, Livongo on the 6th. So we can love to get in those in a minute, but last week we had uh, Shopify, a little company called Amazon, mm -hmm. Google, Atlassian. I'd love to talk real quick just about how, you know, when we think about Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, the yeah. three big public cloud platforms, right? Mm -hmm. For me, I'm not invested in any of those companies, but I look at those as indicators as to kind of the health of um, cloud investment. And yeah. I think their results drive other companies' performance. Like right now, we're seeing a rally in you know, Fastly and, and several other companies, probably off the back of those strong quarters that were reported. So yeah. really long-winded question, but how do you use kind of the public juggernauts like Amazon, Google, and Microsoft to inform what you do in the, in the private world and then also is there a tie in, in your opinion to other companies that are in maybe industries that are kind of a, a play off of those? So edge computing or uh, uh, like application monitoring, things like that. Yeah. 
Oh, totally. I mean, I, I think they're all, I think they're all incredibly related, right? I mean, you look at, you look at Amazon's business, their, you know, their AWS business almost did, I want to say it was close to like 11 billion in revenue. Yeah. This last Crazy. quarter growing 30% year over year. And, and what you look at is, okay, you know, a lot of that is sure driven off storage, but it's also a lot of compute as well. And when you think about, you know, what the derivatives are of something like, AWS growing. I mean, it's it's really it's really everything, right? You know, you you have more. You're spending more on cloud infrastructure. So what does that mean? Oh, well, you're going to have to spend more to monitor it, right? And 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 who's who's the beneficiary of that? All right. Well, that's your Datadogs, that's your Dynatrace, that's your Elastics, right? You know, you you build more of these tools. Um, you know, you build more modern applications. Oh, well, maybe you want more of a modern way to engage with the users of those applications or your customers. Oh, maybe you're, you'll adopt a Twilio. Um, and, and it's you're, you're able to adopt these other cloud tools because you have other cloud applications and infrastructures behind them. You know, it, it's much harder. You know, you're not going it, to. It's much harder to marry the older kind of on-prem version to the modern you know, tool because it, you know, usually it's, you know, one's a derivative of the other. And so, you know, I, I look at, I don't really look at the big players when I think about um, what that means for the private rounds and private businesses. You know, I, I think while, while related and while you always want to keep an eye on, you know, what's going on in GCP or Azure or AWS um, from a competitive standpoint, I think from a market standpoint, we kind of, we all know where the market's going. You know, we know cloud adoption is, has uh, a lot of room to run. We know it's accelerating. Um, you know, I, I think when I look at the public markets, the biggest question for me currently is Q2 and, and all the businesses that are reporting now, this is the first quarter where we're going to see a full quarter of COVID adjusted business, if you want to call it that, you know, few ones that ended in March and April, you know, the March quarters were, you know, largely unaffected by COVID and, and the April yeah. quarters, you know, had a couple of weeks. Um, so it's hard to really read into the numbers too much, but you know, for quarters ending June, for quarters ending July, 100% of that quarter from start to finish was done in a COVID-affected world. And so you see people talking about digital transformations. You see people describing how that's affecting your business. But, you know, what ultimately, you know, the proof's going to be in the numbers. Um, and Amazon and AWS had, you know, had a phenomenal quarter. You know, I, I would say gosh, I wish I had the exact numbers. Um, their growth did, their year-over-year -year growth did decline sequentially a little bit more than it has in previous quarters. Uh, so we saw a little bit of decline, right? And so it, it's still growing fast at a remarkable scale. Um, you know, yet, you know, right, like, hey, digital transformations, right? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's accelerating cloud. You know, maybe we shouldn't have seen so much of a deceleration, you know, and, and it, it's, it's hard to really drill into the specifics, you know, the causation of that. You know, I, yeah. I think we are going to see buyers just be a little bit more hesitant and focus more on critical spend and kind of tier one spend versus tier two and tier three, uh, which is why I think certain vendors um, will benefit more than others. Um, so it's an interesting potentially leading indicator. I, I feel like we can, We'll, we'll, we'll write the narrative once all these businesses report earnings afterwards and make it fit. Um, it, is, it is tricky, though. Now, I, I, and especially, too, since when you compare estimates or you compare the results to consensus estimates, that's also kind of a tricky exercise. I, you know, and the reason I say that is I think for the most part, estimates have been you know, strongly revised down, right? And so many of the businesses, I think every business so far has beaten their consensus estimates for Q2 by quite a bit. It's yep. it's a little bit artificial when they're almost beating, you know, quote unquote fake numbers. Um, the interesting thing has been to see the guidance for next quarter, you know, actually come in a little bit weaker. You know, we saw that with Zendesk, we saw that with Atlassian. Uh, you know, Dynatrace on the other hand had a quite quite a strong guidance. Um, but it's just, it's just tricky, right? Like Shopify reported a phenomenal quarter and didn't provide guidance for next quarter. You know, not because the business is doing bad, but because it's literally growing so fast that they don't know yeah. how to guide. So an analyst, analysts are kind of flying blind in some regard. Um, you know, they don't know how to guide. They don't know how to really build the right model. We're, we're kind of sitting in unprecedented times here. Um, 
you know, I, I think the real the real way to analyze the data will be looking at not compared to consensus estimates, but to the growth rate, you know, the year over year growth rate for the quarter we've seen and kind of how that's compared to historical growth rates and see if, you know, hey, did we see a faster deceleration than normal? Did we see a normal deceleration or, you know, or with, with something like a Shopify, did, did we actually see an acceleration, which is usually rare um, for businesses of this size, right? Uh, but no, it's, it's all, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, you know, we'll, we'll have, if we did this podcast a week later, we, we could be having a much different conversation. You know, it's, it's more speculation at this point. Yeah, for sure. So kind of reading in, and I'll link to this in the podcast and I'll share it out on, on Twitter when we share the episode, but um, at the end of your Q2 preview um, cloud judgment article, you let's see, you made a, an earnings prediction. Yeah. Uh, you said in the short term, valuations have been stretched. We won't see massive boosts to stock prices like we did after the Q1 earnings. 10 of the 54 companies you track saw their share price go up by more than 10% the day after their earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of what you talked about uh, as far as the strength in a lot of these companies um, is already priced in, but for the best businesses, uh, the secular secular growth stars, which you named a few that are that are kind of on your list at yeah. as elite companies, and so maybe we can mention those those here, not for short term predictions, but just from companies that you know you like long term. Uh, mm-hmm. You said they'll grow into their valuation much quicker than people expect. This group does not have a bubble coming. Um, not to say we won't see a ten to fifteen percent correction, um, or Q two might be lighter than expected. That's normal and it'll happen. But in five years. If we were to zoom out and look at the tra- trajectory of these stock prices, I think it'll be a fantastic up and to the right story uh, with a ton of value creation to come. So I feel like yeah. what, what I just read there kind of summarizes a lot of the, the points that you made, but also what is a really important behavioral habit that if anybody is investing in these companies in public markets needs, in my opinion, needs to get a hold of is the idea of ignoring the next potential year or two years and 10, 15, 20% uh, drops or increases in the the share price and focusing on, are these good businesses that are going to grow for five and 10 years out? And clearly like you've got that mentality because that's what you do in the private markets, right? And so it, it, it feels like, and this is why I love talking about this, people invested in these types of companies publicly should learn as much as possible about uh, like venture capital, because that's the type of mindset I think is required to be a successful investor in these types of companies and public markets. Yeah. You know, I I think it's it's interesting. And and the last thing that I will ever try and do is pretend to be a technical trader, right? I think there's two kinds of public investors. There's, there's traders and there's investors, right? The former being shorter term. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how to read a technical chart. Like I know yep. nothing about it and I don't yep. really ever want to. I don't, I don't really care to learn. Um, you know, my philosophy is I want to, I want to invest in businesses that I think will be worth, you know, substantially more three to five years from now. I want to put some money in. I want to set it and forget it for the ones that I really believe in, right. I'll be looking for opportunities to put a little bit more in, you know, just pile a little bit more in every so often, you know, every time there's a big dip, maybe put a little bit more in and, you know, you're, you're constantly reevaluating the portfolio along the way to see which ones, you know, are worth putting a little bit more in. But yeah, I want to, I want to put my money in stocks. I want to set it and forget it. I don't want to think about it. You know, I, I take the mindset of, I, I, you know, in three to five years, I think these businesses will be worth substantially more than they are today. You know, and, and the idea behind the secular growth stars is, and I kind of laid some of this out in that article, but if you look at um, the fact that markets are bigger than we think they are, right, and they're growing faster than we think they are, you know, you look at the unit economics of a SaaS business, things like net retention, things like their, their CAC efficiency payback that just lets them, you know, ultimately be fundamentally good businesses. Then you marry that with the fact that, you know, I think more of a trend we've seen recently, usually the leaders in categories, they are, they're grabbing more share than they used to, right? Markets used to be more fragmented than they are today. You know, currently, I think we see more of the, both the revenue and the equity value, um, you know, accumulate with the leader in a category. 
And usually what happens then is the, the leader in a category, they benefit disproportionately from that uh, market growing faster than people expect. They, they benefit disproportionately from better unit economics, right? They kind of get that compounding effect, which is, um, you know, part of where the secular growth stars come from. Um, and I think that will continue. You know, I don't think that's going to go away um, anytime soon, which is why, you know, I like to not, I think investing in like, you know, ETFs that kind of cover cloud companies is a great way to start. Um, and I think it's a great way to get good exposure to all these macro trends. But I, I personally like to make bigger concentrated bets with the few that I really believe in. Yeah, and I'm not, I haven't invested in every company I listed in the, in the secular growth stars. You know, some of them, I just don't understand quite as much as others. Some of them I missed. Um, some of them I was wrong about, but um, that's where I try and park all my money in ones that I think are going to just benefit disproportionately in the long term from some, a lot of these cloud tailwinds. So uh, we've, we've talked a lot about um, VC clouded judgment. We also, I also asked for questions on Twitter and I don't know if you cheated and looked at these or not yet, but <laughs> I've got some questions, some questions for you. And the first yeah. one I don't even know if this is true or not, but, and I can't even believe it, that this person, I love all of our followers, but I can't believe this person uh, follows me and, and supposedly knows you, uh, Jerry Rice Jr. So flash 80 JR. The first question is ask him what he thought about me in high school. And I'm going to guess <laughs> that you probably didn't hang out uh, with the nerdy kids like him in high school you probably stuck mostly to athletes right so we, we have so yeah he was a great older than me but uh, we only had about a hundred and i don't know 40 kids in every grade so it was a, it's a yeah. smaller high school so you kind of you kind of know everyone yeah and he was he was probably in band and stuff and you hung out mostly exactly. with with athletes right so you don't <laughs> exactly. you didn't know him that well um okay that's interesting he i mean in the in the post he said small world which is crazy small world out there yeah. um all right so we got you warmed up. Um, we had a question from Humble Twig, and they just said, we'd love to hear Jammin's take on all the recent IPOs and um, top three picks out of them. So I uh, don't necessarily have to pick your top three picks, but are there, are there any and some of the ones that have, have come public? Uh, Big Commerce, Lemonade, Encino, I think Agora, yeah. a couple others. Um, I personally have not invested in, in any of them, um, and I'm just kind of – staying away from the IPO scene right now. Uh, cause I, yeah. I've got the companies I understand and familiar with, but would love to hear if any of those are interesting to you. Yeah. You know, it's the IPO scene has been interesting. I, I'd say just the general mania around, you know, software and, and even technology, you know, more broadly has, I think forced a little bit of, of kind of an irrational behavior of the recent IPOs. And it's compounded by the fact that when these companies go public, most of the shares are, are locked up, meaning, existing shareholders prior to the IPO can't sell their shares until it's generally six months after. What that means is there's a limited percentage of shares as a, as a percentage of the total that actually trade. Um, and we have a small supply of tradable shares, you know, a couple, you know, swings in demand can cause big changes in price. Um, so you look at a company like, you know, like a lemonade, right. Which is trading like a SaaS company, you know, which is, it, their valuation on a multiples perspective is just totally different than what insurance companies trade at. And should it deserve a premium to classic insurance? Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely think it should. Should it trade like a SaaS company? Like, no, no way. You know, like that's my personal opinion. Um, you know, you, you even like Encino who I, I love, I like that business quite a bit. I think they built a super, super interesting product. You know, I think the reality is, is financial services as a vertical, you know, it's, it's been, trickier because there are you know it's, it's some might call it a limited market right there's only so many banks that matter you know the sales cycles are usually much longer um, it, it's not as much of a high velocity business implementation takes a while there's usually professional services involved right and so margins are impacted um, you know generally those businesses trade a little bit of a discount to overall SaaS you know Encino for a time was trading like a top 10 pure SaaS software business um, do I think it should should sustain that? Probably not, you know. But I still think that business has quite a quite a bit of room to grow, right? Financial services, in particular, are an industry 
that, um, you know, that hasn't moved to the cloud quickly, right? There's still a lot of room. There's still a lot of on-prem stuff uh, in, in banks. And so they, they're benefiting from that. You know, I look at some of my favorites. Um, you know, I do really like Agora. I, I think they have a lot of tailwind, you know, current tailwind, right? They have the classic COVID tailwinds, if you want to call that. People are looking for ways to engage with others in a real-time manner. And, and they offer an amazing, you know, API product to do that, right? Similar to how Twilio is more of like the jack of all trades around communication. You can text, you can video chat, you can voice call, and you add that via a programmable API. You know, Agora is more focused on that real-time video, real-time communication. Um, I think they've built a phenomenal business. Zoom Info is an interesting one. I generally haven't been the biggest fan of data businesses. I think it's harder to build moats. I think Zoom Info has just gotten to the size and scale where their moat is they just have better data. It was just typically a harder moat to build. Um, I think that's that's definitely an interesting one. Big commerce definitely worries me a bit. You know, going back to my like investing philosophy, investing thesis, I like backing, you know, big markets, great products, but then like that third key bullet was like the leaders in the market, right? And so it, it's hard to get it's hard for me personally to get excited about a big commerce when Shopify is in the market. Um, there might be a better value play there. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm, I, I, I like backing big multiple long-term winners as opposed to like the value bets, right? It's why I own yeah. quite a bit more Datadog, right, than like an Elastic. Both phenomenal businesses, but it's just a slightly different philosophy. Yeah, so it's been winners. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out others uh, you hit oh, on, Jamf, I mean, you hit on the, was you hit the big ones yeah jamf was the apple the apple device management one that one also worries me a bit because apple just bought a company i believe it was called fleetsmith that was that's a company more in my realm venture funded ones and so you know when apple's buying an apple device management product it it worries you a bit um but i think that one had a nice trading debut i haven't really followed it as closely yeah but yeah, you know, I would say you know maybe Agora and Zoom Info would be my favorites of the bunch. With with Agora probably being the favorite. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Um, so we have Quad Sparky who asked uh, just about how total addressable markets for SaaS companies have expanded or shrunk over time, and which companies or markets you expect to be larger. I think we pretty much answered that when we were when we were talking about TAMs earlier. So we'll jump to the next question. Um, it's a great question, but we kind of already hit on the, the TAM topic. This is, a, this is an interesting one from uh, Phil underscore Sylvester. Where do you get a company's customer acquisition costs and net retention rate aside from them just telling you? Uh, how much do you trust these metrics? And if they're calculated by the businesses themselves uh, and not audited by a third party. So maybe there's two yeah. parts to that. It's the private side, but also the, the public side as well. So on the private side, we'll calculate it. We, we generally, though, this is the, the benefit of a much longer due diligence process where we'll engage with the company over weeks. You know, we'll get financials from them, you know, not just like the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow, but customer files, all that. So on the private side, we'll, we'll calculate net retention and we'll, we'll do that specifically with the cohorts. Um, you know, we'll, we will look at all the customers acquired in every quarter and see how they're spend changes in every subsequent quarter. So that's a number we'll, we'll, we'll track and we'll calculate. Kind of similar thing with payback, we can just get a little bit more granular. When we look at public metrics, uh, those the payback is a, is a metric I calculate purely based on the other financials. Net retention is not a number I calculate. There's just, you don't have close to enough data to calculate it yourself. For a lot of businesses, they report it. I would say, you do have to get a little bit in the weeds to make sure it's apples to apples between every company. Most businesses will look at um, the net revenue retention in the way I described, or they'll call it uh, dollar-based net expansion. Sometimes they're calculated differently. For the most part, if you look at their 10Ks and 10Qs, they'll, they'll define it and they'll, they'll say things like, this is inclusive of customer contraction or lost logos. Sometimes, they don't include contraction or churn. And what that means is, you know, let's say you had 10 customers a year ago who were paying you $100,000. Currently you have, you know, nine customers who are paying you, um, just to make it simple, $100,000. If it's not inclusive of churn, 
you would have is you know just a hundred percent net expansion, which is basically like no change. Some businesses will say, hey, we're gonna strip out all the customers who left from the beginning cohort and just look at how the business has changed who were there from start to finish. Usually they don't do that. Um, the numbers they give you, I would trust, you know, being on the banking side, every number that's in one of these documents is heavily scrutinized by a team of lawyers, right? And so I would, I would trust it. The payback stuff, that's all calculated and it's usually a bit more of a swag. It's not gonna be an exact number, but when you calculate the metric the same across the universe of businesses, you can at least benchmark one company versus the other, right? So that I think Zoom had like a phenomenal payback last quarter because their revenue skyrocketed. Um, they're not actually paying back that customer acquisition cost in exactly three or four months or whatever it is. I use it more to like to benchmark the relative performances of of each businesses rather than looking at the absolute value. Yeah. The another thing, and and like you said. Um, there's little asterisks basically at the bottom of the 10 Ks, 10 Qs that outline how these different terms are calculated. Yeah. I own shares of Twilio and, and I like the company I've had. I, I owned shares a couple years ago and actually sold them after the mm-hmm. SendGrid acquisition because I didn't like how Twilio was claiming they had 75% revenue growth when really they only had 75% revenue growth because of yeah. the same grid acquisition and really the organic revenue had ac- the growth rate had actually dipped down to like 30 or 35 percent yeah a couple months ago i, I bought shares again I've, ha- I've had some for the whole time in, in a like a rollover ira that i didn't mm-hmm. touch but in my more uh the account that i i guess you can say manage more actively i bought shares again because it feels like the business is more relevant than ever because of covid and finally, I think Twilio Flex, the programmable call center yeah. uh, platform is, is actually going to start to grow, which is sort of why I was invested in the first place. Um, I was a consultant and, and working uh, at one of our customers, which was one of the largest cable companies in America. And just seeing all their call center and contact center stuff, I was like, wow, this is a, a major need. But then Flex yeah. never really took off. So I think that's going to happen. But Twilio, they're one of the most impressive things when you look at the company is, is their, the amount of customers they have and the growth of customers. But then when you dig down, they count anybody that spends more than $5 a month with them as a customer. Right. Though they're also counted in the dollar-based net expansion rate, anybody that right. spends $5 or more a month. So uh, I guess it just goes to show like you've, you've got to look at those details of how they're calculating that dollar base net expansion rate. And I, I guess at the end of the day, if it's 145%, it's still 145% because that captures the small customers and big customers too. Sometimes people, yeah, sometimes people strip it out though. I mean, you, you really do kind of have to read the fine print to just to make sure it's apples to apples. I, I think Zoom Info, uh, they, they had, you know, they have a bunch of really small businesses who use their data feed. Um, they, you know, they reported two numbers. They, re- they reported an overall number, which I think was like 108, 109% or something like that. And then they reported another number, which I think was more of a tagline number, which was something in the 120s that was, you know, this is the dollar-based net expansion or net revenue retention for every customer paying us, I don't remember what the number was, you know, like more than 10K a year or, or something like that, right? And so, you know, you kind of have to, just figure out which one you care more about, right? Because it really isn't 130% net expansion business. It's really more 109 and they kind of give you these two metrics. So it is important to just to read, you know, just to read the fine print to see what, what the number really is and what it's representing. Really one of the last questions I have for you, Jam, and thanks, thanks for your time is I, one of the metrics I look at and you haven't mentioned it yet is um, sales and marketing spent as a percentage of quarterly or annual revenue. And the reason I look at that is because for software companies, I'm willing to accept them spending more on sales and marketing when they're early. If they prove product market fit, you know, ideally they should have to spend less and less on sales and marketing over time and they can put that into research and development or whatever. Just wondering if that's a metric. Do you think about that metric at all? Um, Or is that captured in the other stuff you look at? You know, so it would, would, uh, I think part of the reason I love the payback metric so much is that it, it, I think it, it factors that in and it, it encapsulates ultimately how effective 
is your sales and marketing spend. You know, because the high level way of before you get into the months, right, the, the inverse of it is the magic number, which will basically tell you, you know, for every dollar of sales and marketing spend, how much, you know, revenue, or I guess in, in, in my case, how much gross profit are you generating for every dollar of mar sales and marketing spend? Um, so I, I think I think the the payback metric is it's a great way to factor in efficiency. You know, it, it kind of takes into account the burn, it takes into account the sales and marketing as a percent of rev. I, I, I think, in, at least in my this is just my view, it, it kind of factors in all the things you'd care about from like a broader efficiency standpoint. Um, and then it's just one less metric to track, right? You know, like the fewer metrics you have to track, the, the better mental yeah. benchmarks you can build. Um, I think it definitely matters and you want to absolutely be looking at sales and marketing spend, you know, whether your personal preferred metric is as a percent of revenue or something like payback or maybe even something like a, a net burn. Um, you know, everyone kind of has their own secret sauce. Mine, mine just happens to be the payback metric. Awesome. Okay. And final question not necessarily looking for a book recommendation, but just resources. If, if you have a, a favorite resource or two, maybe it is a book for anybody mm. that's interested in learning about uh, venture or uh, these public types of software as a service technology companies to just learn more about them and, and maybe get started. My colleague Tomas has a phenomenal blog that break Tomas Tungus that breaks down. This is more from like the operator's perspective as opposed to um, people looking to invest in these businesses, but he does a phenomenal job breaking down and defining the metrics that matter um, as well as just looking at, you know, certain things operators would care about, you know, if you're, and it, his are, his are more of like the quick punchy couple minute posts um, as opposed to like the longer, you know, deep dive things that are going to take you 10, 15 minutes to read. Um, but I mean, he's got so much gold in his pod, in, in his blog over the years that, you know, I, I almost wish there was a way to repost things from years ago. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Awesome. Okay. And we'll share that out and make sure everybody can find it. I've also got two to recommend, uh, Jam and Ball on Twitter and then cloudedjudgment.substack.com. Uh, thanks so much for your time. I, I had a lot of fun. Um, hope, hope you enjoyed it as well and hope the listeners had a good time too. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. See you, Jamin. Take it easy. Bye. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.